Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast, Obsessed with Murder. My boss then was a lieutenant. What do you think? I said, well, you're basically uh, got a, possibly a serial killer working in the area because all the heads were gone. You know, that's a really good question because, I mean, it, you're right, it did run the gamut. There was even talk of Satanism, <laughs> ritual Satanism, and uh, perhaps she had watched a blood sacrifice. Okay, welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast. I'm reporter and narrator John Torres, and this is the third and final part of our mini-season. So we pick up our story with John Crutchley, Harris engineer and married father of a young boy, being arrested on November 23rd. But because he has a clean record, and because he was charged with rape instead of murder, his bail is set at only $50,000. That allows him to bond out 10 days later. And that, depending on what and who you believe was the key to him getting away with murder. Now, there's something you have to understand about search warrants. Unlike what you often see on television, the cops can't just go through and grab whatever they see in the home. They're only allowed to search for the sought-after evidence listed in the warrant or evidence that has to do with the alleged crime. So in Crutchley's case, the sheriff's agents were not aware of any possible murders. And so they did not take the jewelry in Crutchley's closet nor the stack of credit cards in his safe. They also left behind videotapes and computers. They merely took pictures of the stuff. Here is Crutchley's attorney, Joe Mitchell. You might remember his voice from season two of Murder on the Space Coast. So when he got out, I guess what he did was he went back there and uh, destroyed all that stuff. Because when they went back there with the, see, after he got arrested the second time, after they put him in jail, the, the sheriff's department then went back out there again with a warrant to look for stuff. Now, the rumor has it, the proverbial word on the street, is that if they had dug up the yard the first time they were there, because they had no reason to dig up the yard because there wouldn't be any evidence of a rape in the yard. But if they had dug up the yard, they would have got a a head. When the sheriff's office really began to suspect Crutchley might be much more than a rapist was when they filed additional charges, including stealing blood. Then the bond was raised so he could no longer afford it. That was the second arrest Joe was talking about. Now, Joe told me that he still has to be careful of not betraying attorney-client privilege, but you can read between the lines as he answers my question whether Crutchley was responsible for some of the women who went missing in Brevard County. Anyway, during this period of time that he was out, somebody from the state attorney's office called me up and said, here's a plea, we'll we'll let you plead to so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. But before we can finalize this plea bargain, we have to have him clear a polygraph that he's not involved in any of these homicides. So why don't you go up there and talk to him? We're going to go ahead and schedule a polygraph for him. If he passes the polygraph, we'll enter into this plea agreement, and that'll be the end of our investigation of Crutchley and his homicides. 
Well, after talking to Crutchley, that uh, appointment with the polygraph operator got canceled. And then not too long after that, they filed a motion to have his bond uh, upped. And I think Judge Woodson increased his bond to a level that he couldn't make. Meanwhile, homicide agent Bob Leatherow, with help from the FBI and other agencies, continued trying to put together a murder case against Crutchley. There was even talk of a federal espionage case as agents found top-secret information in Crutchley's home regarding U.S. submarine movements. His property was dug up on several occasions, and they spent months, if not years really, searching for Crutchley's trophies that they believe he hid in the county somewhere. Typically, serial killers will keep small mementos or trophies from their victims. They could be things like lockets of hair, ID cards, jewelry. If you remember, television serial killer Dexter Morgan he kept a drop of blood from each of his victims on glass slides. Leatherow and his team even went as far to go dig up graves belonging to non-related Crutchleys. Now, as the rape case was nearing a court date and homicide agents were trying to build a murder case against Crutchley, his attorney Joe Mitchell flew out to California to take the rape victim's deposition. State attorney Norm Wolfinger, who died in 2016, met him out there. So I flew out there to California and Wolfinger, Norm Wolfinger, met me out there. And he was there, he was present when I took the deposition. And after the deposition was over with, we went and uh, got lunch together. And that's when he, he said that the Sheriff's Department thought that uh, Crutchley was involved in at least eight homicides. And that he might be willing to go along with a life sentence on all of them if Crutchley would plead guilty and say what happened to the bodies and so forth. And keep in mind, I was never representing Crutchley for any homicides. I didn't know anything about any homicides when I got involved in this case. <clears throat> but I went over and uh, talked to Crutchley, and there was some conversation where we were getting close to working on a deal. And then uh, Wolfinger just said uh, he thought the Sheriff's Department could solve the homicide or homicides, and he didn't want to enter into the deal. The deal fell apart. There are a few conflicting stories as to why. One was that the Sheriff's Office believed they had enough or would be able to get enough evidence to prove murder. Another story was that the internal politics at the sheriff's office prevented the deal from being made. We don't know. What we do know is that a murder case would never happen. Crutchley pled guilty to the rape and was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, of which he would do 11. Then, only one day after being released in 1996, Crutchley failed a drug test and was sent back to prison for life, where he died in 2002 of autoerotic asphyxiation. Yeah, I'm telling you, you just can't make this stuff up. Even though agencies in multiple states tried proving Crutchley was a murderer, they were never able to. And that haunts Bob Leatherow to this day. All we can say for sure is John Crutchley was a rapist. Trying to prove a lot more. That was, that was my major, major problem. I want to do more, prove more. I want to get him for all the homicides. My daughter says, you know, I have PTSD. Yeah. I'm uh, depressed a lot. I felt badly listening to Leatherow. I told him he was being hard on himself. No one really knew what Crutchley was suspected of when they arrested him for the rape. And even Joe Mitchell recognizes it would have been hard for agents to prove a case without a confession. If the modus operandi, which a lot of people have speculated on, the modus operandi was keep withdrawing blood from somebody and drinking it, until they don't have any blood left and they die. And then dismember their body and bury the body parts in different places, it's pretty hard to solve with the technology back in those days. 
Hey, if you like what we do here with our free Murder on the Space Coast podcast, then please consider supporting us with a digital subscription to Florida Today. The cost for a month is seriously what you would pay for a premium cup of coffee. Help us keep doing what we do. Go to floridatoday.com backslash subscribe. So John Crutchley dies in 2002, leaving more questions than answers in his wake. There would also be no answers in the disappearance of Tammy Lynn Leppard. Ever since I was a little girl, I dreamed of having a house in Cocoa Beach and living happily ever after. That's a quote from Tammy during her last ever interview with Florida Today, about four months before her disappearance. Billy Cox wrote in a later story about Tammy in Florida Today that she disappeared so cleanly it was as if she never even existed. Tammy's mother, Linda Curtis, died in 1995, never knowing what happened to her beauty queen daughter. In the years that followed after Tammy's disappearance, Curtis suffered broken relationships, two heart attacks, diabetes, and problems with her business associates. One of the frustrating things about trying to report this story has been the number of people who knew Tammy who suddenly clam up when I start asking questions. Either that or they will only talk off the record. I couldn't even get a response from Tammy's own sister who has a Facebook page dedicated to raising awareness about Tammy's disappearance. I'm not alone either. I was contacted by another podcaster who found out what I was doing who ran into the same problems. The Cocoa Beach police said that they would get back to me three times after telling me they wouldn't be able to help much due to it being an open case. They spoke with reporter Billy Cox in 1990, seven years after Tammy went missing. They cleared the friend who said he and Tammy had gotten into an argument and he left her on the road. They speculated that it may have been serial killer Christopher Wilder who Billy spoke about last episode. Remember, he was the race car driver who killed several beauty queens, including Terry Ferguson from Indian Harbor Beach. He lured Ferguson away from the very same mall on Merritt Island that Tammy had previously modeled in. But a lot of the speculation involved Tammy either having witnessed or having knowledge about illegal activity that she shouldn't have known. And I thought that seemed a bit far-fetched at first, but now I'm not so sure since nobody would talk to me. It seemed weird. Here's Bonnie King. Many on the Space Coast here know Bonnie from her previous work as the film commissioner for the Space Coast Office of Tourism. I met Linda when I was the marketing director at Merritt Square Mall, which is a regional shopping center here on Merritt Island, and I would have fashion shows, and she had a modeling agency, so she would come visit me because she would like me to use some of her models when we did our fashion shows, and that's how I got to know Linda, and during that time, of course, she told me about her daughter that was missing, and really, you know, we would have little sympathy sessions where she would come in and she would talk and unload to me about what was going on and how frustrated she was and, and um, you know, how she, she's going to keep the search going, etc. Because of the time that I spent with her mother, I'm thinking the same thing that she was thinking, that she got involved with something that she didn't, that she didn't feel comfortable about and she was very scared. And I think that's I, something happened, and I don't know. I don't know what it is. I have no idea, but I do believe that she got involved in something that was over her head, and she didn't know how to deal with it. And King verified some of the stories that have been told, and what we heard journalist Billy Cox say in a previous episode about Tammy's state of mind. Clearly, there was something wrong. King said she spoke to Tammy's mother about it often, and she just said that she was 
acting crazy, um, like somebody that could have been on drugs and that was saying things like, I can't tell you this, I can't, I can't tell you this, but I know things. And, and like somebody on drugs. And I think that her mom was even trying to think maybe she is on drugs because she's talking so weird and then, and had her baker acted. So, I mean, that was very hard on her. I mean, that was like three days her daughter is, and her, and her daughter was very upset about it, too. I mean, when she came out of it, her daughter was not happy with her mother mm. that she had put her in there. So there was a bit of, you know, that, you know, the relationship between a mother and a daughter doing something like that. It did not hold well at all with, with Tammy. According to news reports after Tammy went missing, her mother had her baker acted or put in a facility for a few days. And it was reported that there was no sign of drug abuse. Was it a mental breakdown? Did Tammy witness something she shouldn't have? Did she run across Christopher Wilder or John Crutchley? King remembers the day that Terry Ferguson was taken by serial killer Christopher Wilder from the Merritt Square Mall. Billy Cox mentioned this story last episode. Wilder, who targeted models and beauty queens, remained a suspect in Tammy's disappearance as well. Tammy's mother, Linda, even sued his estate after he was killed during a shootout with police near the Canadian border. But she would later say she only filed the lawsuit to keep her daughter's name and case in the news. You know, it's kind of easy these days to resort to victim blaming. I mean, why would that teenager get in Crutchley's car? Why would somebody leave a mall with Christopher Wilder? But I think we have to force ourselves to remember that these predators are quite adept at earning trust. I mean, they have to be charming, right? How to interact with and identify some of these monsters is one of the reasons people like the Murderinos are obsessed with true crime. We want to be able to understand why they do the things they do and protect ourselves as well. Here is Murderino, Christine Saunders. Um, well, I've been a, um, a true crime studier. I, don't, I hate the word fanatic because that just sounds like, you know, like it's glorifying crime but right. I've been I've been a person who paid a lot of attention attention to crime since I was very young um, I didn't grow up here in Florida I grew up in Maryland but my in I believe fifth or sixth grade um, one of my classmates who I'd been in school with since kindergarten was uh, murdered her her brother and her mother were all murdered by their stepfather and now I have the words to describe that as a family annihilation he then killed himself and that was in my neighborhood someone I grew up with someone that I had known my whole life she taught me how to do the uh, electric slide when we were in a dance in in elementary school you know things like that oh my gosh yeah yeah so um that's that's really the first time I remember like paying attention to it um after that I just was always like on the lookout for stories and and how things happen and you know we never really got the the full story on why their stepfather um, cracked or what what caused him to to go from a pretty normal person to a family annihilator. Um, so that's where it started, and it's it's just. It's fascinating. It's it's hard to wrap your head around the people's lives that were lost, and then also you want to understand the people who committed the crimes too. You want to understand how that happened and how we as a society can stop that from happening. Um, not that I really believe we can. Well, maybe we can. Maybe knowing about all of this stuff can actually save your life one day. 
I mean, I'm obsessed with true crime as well. And I know never, ever, ever to leave with a gunman from a public place. I learned that after watching a news clip of a banking customer who simply dropped to the ground and refused to leave with an armed bank robber. Unable to lift her dead weight, he fled. Here once again is Billy Cox with a fascinating story about how a woman he interviewed survived a harrowing encounter with serial killer Denny Rowling, who terrorized college students in the Gainesville area in 1990. Just in your opinion, Bill, what, what, is, what is our fascination with this stuff? Well, let me share a, a, a Sarasota story here along those same lines. Do you remember the name Danny Rowling? Danny Rowling was from Louisiana. He had gone on a killing spree. He wound up being the murderer with the Gainesville students, the University of Florida. Oh, yes, students. yes, right, of course, yes. Back in 1990, there was a woman here, in, in fact, I think it's safe to say that she was his last surviving victim. Uh, her name was Janet Frakes, and I have no problem mentioning her name because I did a story on her uh, a day or so before Rowling was executed back in, I think it was 2006 mm. um, or 07. But, but anyway, <clears throat> Janet was a big murder mystery fan. Uh, she's living by herself and one night uh, I think it was in July or so maybe August of 1990 shortly before the Gainesville murders uh, her house is broken into and she is attacked by this guy who's wearing a mask um, and anyway yeah you know, just a terrifying experience. Um, he forces her into the bedroom and there's a rape involved. And she's obviously afraid that she's going to be murdered there. But she has read enough crime stuff to understand that you keep the guy talking, keep him talking. She tried to be calm. And she... Um, ask him after it's done I mean, she, she, she's keeping very calm demeanor calm voice and all of this trying not to get him too excited and she gets him talking and talking and talking and finally uh, she says uh, do you want a beer and he said yeah I think I will and she takes the towel and she wipes herself off after this so she's got DNA she knows to do this. So she got the towel and, and, and she throws it in the corner and she goes into the kitchen with him following her and she says, have a seat. And she pours a beer in a glass, hoping that he will get his fingerprints on the glass, right? Um, and she, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's wearing gloves. He doesn't take his gloves off. And he gets so relaxed, he says, it's really hot in here. Um, I think I want to take my mask off. And she says, please don't do that. Don't take your, I don't want to see your face. And so he keeps his mask on. That may have been what kept her alive, but he gets so relaxed. He says, you know, if you and I had met under different circumstances, we might have been good friends. I mean, I still get chills thinking about that. Man. Just listen. Yeah, and so 
he says, um, all I'm asking is 10 minutes. He says, I know you're going to call the cops, uh, but you don't know if I'm going to be standing outside your door listening to you or you don't know where I'm going to be. He said, if you call the cops immediately, he says, you're dead. Uh, but you give me 10 minutes and he says, I'll be out of your life. And that's what she did. She called the cops um, and they came and took the genetic material and they didn't make the match to rolling until, oh gosh, I think rolling was in court. He'd been arrested for the murders and he was testifying, which was carried on TV live and she's watching this because she, you know, she's still interested in murders and she hears his voice and she goes, that's him. That's the guy who raped me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Now he'd already, I think he'd been convicted, but she goes to the local PD or sheriff's department, which I forget which handled. And she says, look, check your DNA with this, you know, it's on file, right? I, this is the guy, the same guy. And they said, yeah, you're right. That's him. Nice detective work. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, but there was no, at that point, um, you know, the proceedings were, were, were far along and there was, you know, no, you know, he was going, he was on the death row anyway, so there was no reason to, to, to put another one to that. But right. I thought, you know, when you're talking about the murderinos, sometimes I wonder if, um, I, I think Janet might have qualified for that. And I think being familiar with M.O., um, I think it might have saved your life. Wow. Damn, that, I have chills right now for that story. Yeah. In talking to Billy, I was reminded of the craziness during the early 80s in and around Brevard County. Not only did we have the terrible stories of Tammy's disappearance, the vampire rapist, and a slew of unsolved murders or missing women, including Patty Volansky, the Adam Walsh case, and Christopher Wilder, but that was also the time period when law enforcement used fraudulent dog handler John Preston to put innocent men like Wilton Dedge, Juan Ramos, and William Dillon in prison for decades. You can hear their stories in Season 2 of our Murder on the Space Coast podcast. Another victim of the fraudulent dog handler, Gary Bennett, remains in prison. His story was the subject of Season 1. We will never know for sure if John Crutchley was a serial killer, and if so, how many victims he claimed. We may also never know what happened to Tammy Leppert a beauty queen and an actress who seemed to have so much promise. It was the, the, the whole thing. I mean, she was adorable, you know, a nice-looking girl, and um, she just looked like, you know, the, the all-American girl that could be, uh, and, and, and very talented in the sense that, you know, she knew, she knew how to use herself to make herself presentable and the, her personality. She knew the way to walk and talk, if you know what I mean. And because of that... You know, she had a great deal of, uh, there was a great deal of confidence like that when she was on stage, so to speak. But I think behind the scenes, because of whatever was going on in her life, she wasn't as, she wasn't the confident girl that she was on the stage that you would see behind, you know, in real life. I'm John Torres, and this has been a mini-season, an intermission, if you will, of our Murder on the Space Coast podcast. Keep an eye out for Season 6, dropping to all major podcast platforms in the near future. Thanks for listening.
For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on this case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.